Well, good morning, church. We're going to continue in our Advent series today. And uh, through our Advent devotional this year that we're reading together, uh, one of the things that uh, Tim Chester does in this devotional this year is is he does a lot of comparisons between the Old Testament and the New Testament and helping us to see that this is the unified Word of God that points us to one common person, which is Jesus Christ. And as we thought about this, we decided to do something a little bit different. Uh, We're going to do a little bit of what I would call tag team preaching this morning. Grant and I did this last week, and today it'll be Matt and I. And we're going to so we're going to look at Genesis six. Matt's going to bring a message on Genesis six, and then I'm going to come after him, and we're going to make a connection between Genesis six and Mark chapter one, and and hopefully help us once again. Our goal is to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And as we consider that this morning, let's turn to Genesis 6, a familiar story of Noah and his ark. And if you'd stand with me in honor of God's word, we'll read Genesis 6, beginning in verse 5. And the word of the Lord says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth that every intention of his thought of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and the lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart so the lord said i will blot out man whom i have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for i am sorry that i have made them but noah found favor in the eyes of the lord These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the ark, the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see your glory this morning. Open our ears to hear your word. Father, that you would grab hold of our wills this morning and conform them to yours. That you would set our sights on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. That you would make us kingdom people this morning. Not kingdoms of our own making, but your eternal kingdom and your eternal reign would be first and foremost in our thoughts. And Father, above all things, help us to see King Jesus today. To see him in Genesis 6. I pray that you would bless us through Matt this morning, that he would be able to bring forth what you have given him in his time of study and prayer. And then I pray, Father, you would help us to see King Jesus in Mark chapter 1, to see the beginning of his ministry and the foundation that was laid upon which we continue to build as your church. Lord, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith this morning. We pray in his glorious name. Amen. Matt, will you come? Let's not do that again. <laughs> he's, he's hating on my double podium up here. 
Last week in the uh, Advent series, as um, Grant laid out for us, the, the first and, and faulty Adam, and then, and then Andrew connected for us the, the true and, and better Adam, and they did a great job of hopefully helping you to see just kind of the overall picture of Scripture. And, and like Andrew said, that's really our goal with this series. We, we want to connect from Genesis to Revelation with us being able to look and see who Jesus is and get a better understanding of our Bibles through that. But one question uh, that Grant asked is, who will, who will redeem what sin has stolen? That was his main question last week. Who will redeem what sin has stolen? And, and we saw and Andrew showed us that it was through suffering, it was Jesus. And so this week, as, as we come to the new ark, as we come to a familiar story and we, we think of Noah and its ark, I, just the question I want us to think about is, is what comes to your mind first this morning when you hear Noah and the ark? For some, that could be the new ark built a couple hours from here. Y'all went and visited it and had a great experience. For some, that might be the animals entering in. For others, just the massive size of this boat that, that God has had him to construct. I mean, the faithfulness of Noah, he built this for about a hundred years. How much was he made fun of during this time? How much, how silly did he look building this ark for this long? And so his faithfulness, I mean, there could be all kinds of thoughts that, that go into our, our minds when we think of Noah and the ark. And, and all of them are good and a part of it. But what I want us to see this morning, that, that the main point of Noah's ark is salvation or a new beginning. And specifically, we see salvation of Noah and his family. Eight persons. And, and, and they are saved from the judgment of God on all flesh. And we could say it this way. Because of God's grace, Noah and his family are led through judgment to safety. I forgot I was controlling this. Let me do that now that I remember. First Peter 3, talking about this, says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, notice... Uh, that second to last word on that. It was through water that they were delivered. And I think growing up, um, I would have thought it was from water that they were delivered. But, but there was something far more dangerous than the water. That was God. That was God's wrath being poured out was far more dangerous than the water. And what happens is God's going to deliver them through the water or or we could say by the water and the means in which he does that is with the ark. He's going to protect Noah and his family. So what I want us to do is just walk through this text uh, briefly. I'm just going to do a couple points and the first one it's on your outline is sin defined in a judgment pronounce in verse 5 this text andrew read for us began with the lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually the phrase the lord saw it's in direct contrast to what happened in Genesis 1.31, where the Lord has just created everything. And it says, and the Lord saw, and it was, behold, it was very good. Now, 
just a couple chapters later, we don't know how much time later, but there's some time here because of Genesis 3, because of sin, now the Lord sees and what he sees is sin's results. And what it is is A on your outline. Sin is wickedness that defines every aspect of man. It's any thought, any word, any deed, action contrary to the character and law of God. This is what sin is. And and no one likes to think of themselves like this. None of us likes to think that we are completely sinful people. But the scriptures are very clear on this. Uh, In uh, Romans 3, Paul quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 says... None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God's. And because of this, because we have all sinned against this holy God, he has to respond. And he does. And this is B. The judgment is all deserve death. Now, you can see this in in verse 6 and 7, but I want to show it to you in verse 13 here. It says, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, a lot of people, when they come to this text, they get really uncomfortable with, with God destroying the earth and they blame god for it and we we tend to do that in our sin don't we we blame god for the things that we have done and here in this text it makes it very clear that it is through man that god is destroying the earth it's through our sin that god has to reign this judgment it's not because of this is what he wanted or his plan for the earth it's through us, our sin. And we, we need to feel that because, as Paul would write later, the wages of sin is death. And because we have sinned, there must be death. God warned of this to Adam in Genesis 2. He said, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for then surely you will die. And here, it was a postponed death. God did not kill them right away. We do not die as soon as we sin because we would all die instantly, wouldn't we? There's a postponed, but there is payment still. Death is in the world. And again, this isn't encouraging at this point, is it? This is very discouraging, but we need to stop and just... Feel the weightiness of what our sin has caused. That apart from the grace of God, we are a sinful people. None righteous. And all we deserve is death. But listen to these two words. But God. That leads us to our second point. Grace defined and a promise established. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And what grace is to a grace is God's unmerited favor towards us. Noah didn't deserve grace. Noah is born after Genesis 3, just like us. Noah is born of sin with a sin nature just like us. He does not deserve uh, uh, grace. He deserves death. But see, grace is not God's reward on good deeds or sinless people. Grace flows out of the very character of who God is because God is love. Therefore, he shows grace to those who don't deserve it. And we need to feel that and the weightiness of that as well this morning. Noah's response to God's grace is faith. He believed 
God. When God gave His warning, Noah, destruction is coming. Build an ark. What did Noah do? He listened. He obeyed. He built the ark. He heard God's warning and he acted upon God's commands by listening to him and and trusting in him. And Hebrews 11 sums this up in the known as the faith chapter in the Bible. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world, became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The, the unmerited favor of God is poured out on Noah right here. But that doesn't mean that judgment ceased. Judgment still came. It's just that Noah and his family were protected. And they were protected by his ark. Think of it this way. We could say that God's judgment was poured out on the ark. And that leads to 2B. This promise is God will deliver His people through His ark. God will deliver His people through His ark. God is saying, Noah, here's the promise. I will spare your family. I will spare it from my wrath. Build an ark. But but what we need to be thinking this morning is what does this ark point to? Where does this ark find its fulfillment? Genesis 3.15. Last week we saw that the promised seed would come to defeat death. And because of God's grace in this passage, we see there's still hope for that because through the line of Noah, that seed is still to come. And as we go through the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, etc., and we keep going through, we see these different seeds, but they all fall short. And then we come to this baby in a manger. The one that the people of God have been waiting for throughout this Old Testament, which is, by the way, what Advent is. It's, it's the waiting on God's promised one. And they were, they were waiting for this Messiah, God's perfect one, who would live the perfect life, who would lay down his life, who would go to the cross where God's righteous judgment would be poured on him. See, Jesus is the true and better ark. He's the one whose God's wrath would, would be poured out on. And the gospel promises that any who believe in Him will have eternal life. Any that who repent of their sins and enter into the ark will be protected through the judgment and delivered into salvation, or you could say, a new beginning. And the questions that I leave you with this morning is, have you trusted in Jesus as Lord this morning? Have you heard His warning, repent and believe? And then have you, by faith, entered into His ark and into eternal life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your ark that you have given us. Lord, we know that in our sinfulness that we did not deserve this. But out of your great love and grace, you sent your son to take our place. And that all who would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so, Father, I pray that for anybody in here today who does not know you, would they hear your warning, Lord? Would they repent and believe? Amen. If you would, turn to Mark chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 1 through 11. 
Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, Son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Andrew, would you come and preach this for us? Mark chapter 1. Matt began with a question, what comes to mind when we think of Noah and his ark? And, and I want to ask a similar kind of question. What comes to mind for you when you think of the beginning of Jesus' story? What comes to mind for you when you think of the beginning of Jesus' story? As we come to Christmas time, we often think of the birth of Christ. And, and in many ways, we think of that as the beginning of Jesus' story. But as we As we look to the writers of the four Gospels, these four perspectives that God has given us on the life story of of Jesus, and each of them addresses different things in in different ways, but they all come together to form one cohesive picture of who is this Jesus that is the King over all. As we look to Matthew's Gospel, we see Matthew begins by looking back to a man named Abraham that we uh, become acquainted with in Genesis chapter 12, the father of the, of the Jewish people that was known as the Israelites. And, and Matthew's goal in beginning with Abraham was to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of all God's covenant promises through the, to the Jews through all those years of the Old Testament. So he's trying to link Jesus to the Jews by beginning with, with Abraham. So that's where Matthew starts. And then we get into Luke's gospel, and Luke begins with the proclamations that the angels made about the birth of these two men that, that we're going to look at this morning, John the Baptist and and Jesus, that the angels came proclaiming his birth. And so Luke begins in that place, and that's the most familiar place that we go to at Christmas time. Uh, we'll, we'll read Luke chapter 2 and some portions of that on Christmas Eve during that service, and, and that's where we what we often think of when we think of about Christmas time and the beginning of Jesus' story. And then we go to the Gospel of John, which we looked at last year in Advent. And John goes even farther back than Matthew did. He goes all the way back to the very beginning, before the beginning of time, and says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was there in the beginning with God. And by verse 14, we recognize that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And not too long after that, we recognize this one he's talking about, the Word is actually a person. It's Jesus It's Jesus, the Son of God. And so that's where those begin. But then, perhaps strangest of all, we come to the Gospel of Mark. And Mark begins the story of Jesus in a place that we think might uh, be well down the line. If if you think about great, I, I love to read biographies. And if you think about great biographies that you may have have read I have yet to read a, a biography that begins three years from the person's death. 
And yet that's exactly where Mark begins as we pick up in verse 1. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he jumps directly into Jesus' 30th year the midst, in the midst of this magnificent ministry of, of Jesus' cousin John the Baptist. People coming out to him from all over uh, the surrounding area to be baptized by John. And then Jesus joins their number. And, and the first thing we hear about Jesus is not him being born in a manger. is not the proclamation of angels. Is not the fact that he is the very son of God through whom all things were made. Mark begins with his baptism. Which may seem a strange place to begin Jesus' story. And yet I hope by the time we finish this morning, you'll have a better understanding of why Mark begins in this place. And what it has to do with the ark and that picture of salvation. So let's jump to point number three on your outline this morning. We're going to talk about baptism defined and our salvation pictured. Now, just like Matt showed us just a few moments ago, how the ark is really a picture of salvation in the same way. That's what baptism is. Baptism is a a picture of that which saves us. Baptism does not save us. It's merely a symbol or a picture of he who does. And so four things that we want to see about baptism from Mark chapter one that helped to flesh out this idea that that baptism is picturing for us the way of salvation. That first of all, we see baptism is picturing repentance from sin. You jump there into into uh, verse four and five, and we see that that John the Baptist appeared baptizing in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the people were going out to him and were being baptized, confessing their sins. And so as we think about baptism, this picture that God has given to us that we practice here in our church, we remind ourselves that baptism is a picture of repentance from sin. The idea of baptism was tied back to the Old Testament idea of this, this ritual washing that would take place where the, the priests would not dare to go into the presence of God without doing these ritual washings. And, and even in John the Baptist's day, we, we, we see examples of how Gentiles, non-Jews, would, would come into the Jewish faith. They would, they would become converts to Judaism through an act of baptism, of being immersed in water. And it was a, it was a picture of cleansing from sin that was taking place. It was a picture of turning away from sin that they might trust in the one true and living God. And so repentance was key here. And John comes proclaiming a baptism of repentance and calling the people to turn away from their sin. And that's what we see. When when we see a baptism in our church, we ought to be reminded of the call to repentance. And not just as a one and done, but that repentance continues to be a part of the Christian life as we seek to struggle against sin and see victory that comes through faith in Christ. And so baptism picturing repentance from sin. But then the next thing that we see as we move on to verse 6 is we see that baptism also pictures a rescue from judgment. Again, think of the ark, but even more so, look at the picture here that's given of John the Baptist. And this is a strange dude, man. I mean, even in the first century, this was not normal behavior that we are seeing from John the Baptist. It says, now John was clothed with camel's hair. That's not high fashion, by the way. And wore a leather belt around his waist. And ate locusts and wild honey. Bugs dipped in honey. Mm. I'll just get you ready for lunch today. This was a picture, though, of John the Baptist. And this is something that John was doing very intentionally. Why does he clothe himself this way and choose this particular diet Because what he was picturing for the people was all the line of Old Testament prophets of which he would be the last. 
John was the last in this long line of Old Testament prophets. We could all go all the way back to, to Moses and see the beginning of that long line of men who spoke for God for hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, it had been 400 years since Malachi, the last of those Old Testament prophets, until John comes and the people, these people had never seen a prophet. It had been 400 years since God had sent someone to speak on his behalf. And so John comes and he becomes a living reminder of what all of the Old Testament prophets had said and what they had called the people to. And what they had continually called the people to was repentance from sin so that they might escape the judgment of God. If you read those Old Testament prophets, sometimes it it, it becomes very difficult to work through them. I'm in Zechariah right now, and I've worked through several of the prophets over the last few months. And there's just this continual drumbeat of the judgment of God is coming. Repent and turn away from your sins. I mean, it, it is just continual over and over again to where you go, surely they would have gotten it after all of those years, but they didn't. And the call of God continued. The judgment of God is coming. Repent and turn away from your sins. And so when John comes dressed in this way and eating these things, he is a living picture of all those hundreds of years of God's call to repentance. And that there would be rescue from judgment by the grace of God. Again, not because any were worthy but because God in his faithfulness made a way of escape. Again, think of the ark, but again, think of what baptism is picturing. And we don't often associate baptism with the judgment of God, and yet we should, because baptism is a picture of one who, like Noah and his family in the ark, were escaping the judgment of God through water. Now again, don't misunderstand Baptism doesn't accomplish that. It just points to the one who accomplished that. Don't misunderstand the symbolism here. Uh, Baptism in and of itself, apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ, is just taking a kind of a strange bath in church. And we don't want to commend that. But we do commend baptism for all who have trusted in Jesus Christ. It is a symbol, a powerful and necessary symbol that helps us to see the gospel put on display. It pictures our rescue from judgment. Thirdly, Baptism pictures a reminder of God's grace. Again, God's unmerited favor. Baptism is a reminder. There's nothing that we bring to the table. And you notice even John the Baptist, this is a man of whom Jesus said, there have been none born by women of the natural way of birth who are greater than John. That was Jesus' estimation of John. He's the greatest man who's ever been born in the natural way of things. Now, we know that Jesus wasn't born in the natural way of things. So he's excluded from that group. But he's saying John is the greatest of men born in the natural way of things. That was Jesus' estimation of him. And notice John's estimation of himself. John said this in his preaching. After me comes he who is mightier than I. Verse 7, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And there are three powerful pictures of the grace of God in those words that I don't want you to miss this morning. First of all, John says the grace of God is put on display in his superior strength. He says, he who comes after me is mightier than I. It's displayed in his superior strength in that he is coming and he is able to save you from sin. John was basically saying, my baptism is pointing you forward to him. I'm preparing the way of the Lord. That's the reference at the very beginning of Mark's gospel back to Isaiah and Malachi. He's quoting those Old Testament prophets as he's getting ready to introduce the the last in their line. And he's saying, John says, I'm coming, I'm preparing the way. And yet the one who comes after me, he is mighty to save. He's mightier than I. He is has a superior strength. But not just that. Look at the next phrase. 
He says, and I am not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. Now to understand that, you have to understand culturally that that the lowest position in a household, in those days there were, there were many servants in a household of various degrees, and the low guy on the totem pole had the role of when the master would return home, that he would take off the master's sandals and he would wash the master's feet. That was the job that, in fact, it was so lowly that no Jew would, would stoop to that level. They would find a Gentile to serve in that way in a wealthy household so that no Jewish person would have to stoop to that level. And yet notice what John the Baptist says. I'm not even worthy to be low man on the totem pole to the one who comes after me. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals to do the lowliest of tasks in relation to him. This is why when Jesus asked John to baptize him, John says, what are you talking about? You should be baptizing me. And yet Jesus said it's to fulfill all righteousness that you'll do this. This is God's perfect plan. And so get on board, dude. Let's do this thing. And so we see here, though, John saying he not only has a superior strength, but he has a supreme worth. This is the grace of God that he who is worthy of all of our praise and glory would come in human flesh and would submit himself to baptism and would stoop even lower to on the night when he was betrayed that he would bow before his disciples and remove their sandals and wash their feet taking the lowest of places and if that wasn't low enough that he would stoop even lower the following day when he submitted himself to death on the cross he could go no lower than that He who is of supreme worth took the lowliest place. Not only is he of superior strength and of supreme worth, but notice verse 8, he has a better baptism. John said, I've baptized you with water. That's good. But he will baptize you. He will literally immerse you in the Holy Spirit. Now, this was a radical new idea because in the Old Testament days, the Holy Spirit came and went in the lives of God's people. We see various characters being filled with the Spirit in the Old Testament days, but it never stayed long. The Holy Spirit always came and went in the lives of God's people for a specific purpose. But he's saying, no, something new is coming here. You're going to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to go so so fill your lives. It's as if being immersed in water that everyone who comes in contact with you is going to get wet that's the idea here that the holy spirit is going to so fill your life and be controlling your life that the glory of god is going to be displayed in you in a way that all the old testament people could only dream about and could only consider as a possibility baptism pictures a reminder of his grace and finally this morning baptism pictures receiving his promise so then jesus comes on the scene in verse 9 and the first thing that mark wants us to see about the life of jesus christ is his baptism and this ought to in our thinking and in our believing this ought to elevate baptism in our minds Again, not as that which saves us, but as a picture of that which saves us. That we we don't see baptism as an optional thing. This is a first step of Christian obedience. And Jesus here is doing this not, not because he had any sin to repent of. But so that he might set before us an example that we might walk in his steps. And he begins his ministry in this powerful way and so jesus came from nazareth and was baptized by john in the jordan and when he came up out of the water immediately notice the picture here he saw the heavens being torn open there's only one other place where that word torn open is used 
in the Gospels. That Greek word is the same word that's used on the day when Jesus died on the cross and the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So at the beginning of his ministry here, the heavens are torn open and the spirit comes down and the father proclaims, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And as he completes his ministry there on the cross, when he says it is finished, the father takes that curtain which had separated the holy of holies from the rest of the world. And the father said, no longer will there be a separation between me and my people as he shredded that curtain from top to bottom the way is opened that's the picture jesus is opening the way to the father at the beginning of his ministry and he seals it at his death and so we see once again in baptism a reception of the promise of god That the way to God has been opened. We see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, engaged here with one another in beginning and inaugurating the ministry of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit is a sign of God's power upon Him. And the Father is speaking, this is my beloved Son. And they're saying, pay attention. Church, pay attention. Listen and see the glory of God that's being put on display and all of this for your salvation. All of this for your rescue. All of this for your deliverance. Noah may have spent a hundred years building that ark, but it paled in comparison to what was happening here in Mark chapter 1 as Jesus is opening a whole new and greater way of salvation. Second Corinthians 1, I love this verse. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. That's why it's through Him that we utter our amen to, the, to God for His glory. So let me leave you with three brief thoughts as we come to a close today. As we consider the ark, as we consider baptism, as we consider these pictures that God has given us that ought to be for us revelations of the person of Jesus Christ and God's grace in Him. Let's talk about the gospel defined and the ark opened. The gospel defined and the ark opened. Move down to verse 14 of, our, of Mark 1 and it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, and notice, notice Jesus' message. Remember John's message. He's mightier than I, he's more worthy than I, and he has a better baptism. I'm just preparing the way for him. But notice Jesus' message is radically different. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And we could spend quite a while talking about all what Jesus meant by those three statements. But let me just give you three thoughts based upon Jesus' introductory sermon. What is this all about? What does it mean that, that, the, that the ark has been opened and a way of salvation made for us? I just want to use this acronym ARC to, to lay before us what the gospel is calling us to. First of all, we must acknowledge Jesus' authority. From the very beginning of this gospel, when he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he begins to quote Malachi and Isaiah from the very beginning. And what does it say? Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord, not just another prophet, not just a great teacher, not a a wonderful man, not a figurehead and not an earthly king. None of those things were going to be. It says prepare the way of the Lord. God is taking on flesh and coming to dwell among us. Make yourself ready. And Advent causes us to look back to His incarnation to remind ourselves that He came, God, in the flesh to dwell among us and to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. No number of good works was going to get it done. 
No amount of church attendance was going to merit the favor of God. No amount of good deeds, no, no service rendered was going to enable us to take hold of this great salvation. And then God stepped in and offered it to us freely through the sacrifice of His Son. This is worth rejoicing in, but we must begin by acknowledging His authority that He's not just Savior, He is Lord. That's where it must begin there. In fact, when we, when we baptize folks, our, our common profession of faith is this. Jesus is Lord. Yes, He is a mighty Savior and able to save, but He is also the Lord above all lords. He has authority over our lives. Secondly, the ark opened means that we are called to repent of our rebellion. John the Baptist wasn't the only one that comes preaching repentance. Jesus preaches, repent and believe in the gospel. And so I would say to us this morning, it's not enough for us simply to say, well, I believe in Jesus. In fact, James will say later in the book of James, he'll say, hey, even the demons believe in Jesus and they shudder. They are scared out of their boots at the thought of what's coming for them. And we ought also to be in such a way that would lead us to repentance. The fear of God is right and good and true in that the fear of God will lead us to a place where we rightfully repent. It begins by recognizing His authority, that He has the authority to condemn us. It leads to repentance. And then finally, we find ourselves, if we understand these things rightly, kneeling before the King of Kings. You see, that's what Mark would lead us to from the very beginning of his gospel. Over and over in the gospel of Mark, there is this common theme of Jesus being proclaimed as the Son of God who is worthy of our worship. We find it right here from the mouth of the Father at His baptism. We find it again from the mouth of the Father at the Mount of Transfiguration when the glory of God was put on display in such a magnificent way. Interestingly enough, we find it several times in the Gospel of Mark from the mouths of demons as He's about to cast them out. They said, we know who you are. You're the Son of God. We find Him being called the Son of God at His crucifixion by a Roman centurion, perhaps the same one who had nailed His hands and feet to the cross. At the end, proclaimed, Surely this was the Son of God. But you know, interestingly enough, we never in the book of Mark find His disciples Proclaiming Him as the Son of God. We never find the religious leaders proclaiming Him as the Son of God. We never find the popular people proclaiming Him as the Son of God. The intelligent people. The wealthy people. It's none of those. It's always the lowly, who are able to see the one who stooped down to take our place. It's always those who kneel before the king that are able to recognize his authority and his grace. And so I would ask you today, are you recognizing the authority of King Jesus? Are you walking in repentance and faith? And do you recognize the time for those things is now? There is an urgency to the gospel that we often miss. In a day when so many other things seem urgent, this is urgent. Second Corinthians chapter 6, he says... 
in a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. And then Paul reminds us, behold, pay attention, listen up. Today, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. We have no promise for tomorrow. And there would be so many, just like in the days of Noah, that would see that a door of the ark opened and would look upon the door and say, well, I'll do that tomorrow. I've still got some living to do. But once the rains began, there was no more opportunity to enter into the ark. And I would say to us, once the heavens are torn open by the power of God and the Son of God comes in His glory and the last trumpet sounds, there will be no more opportunity to enter into the ark. The judgment has already begun. Today is the day of salvation. What urge you not to put off getting on the ark. Recognize His authority. Repent of your sin. And bow the knee before King Jesus. Let's bow together. Father, we recognize this morning that you have done for us a work of immeasurable worth. That you are the God who is mighty to save. Of infinite glory and worth. You are the God who has given us pictures like baptism and and the ark and so many other pictures that would point us to one common source and end. He is Jesus Christ. The Son of God. Who was born into the world. God taking on flesh to come to dwell among us. He experienced all of our temptations. Every bit of our sufferings. Yet he was without sin. This morning I pray, Father, that you would help us to see that today is the day of salvation. Today the door of the ark is open. By your grace, an ark has been provided. His name is Jesus. And if we would humble ourselves and come to Him in repentance and faith, turning from our sins and trusting in Christ, we would experience the sweetest communion that can be known to man. Not just in the by and by, but in the here and now, Father, help us to see there is a sweetness to this salvation If we would but taste and see that the Lord, He is good. And Father, I pray that we would not be content with just a little taste. But that we would desire to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. That we would desire to be consumed by Christ. That we would not be content with just having a little Jesus on the side, but that we would recognize that the fulfillment of all that we have been desiring and created to desire by you is found in Him and Him alone. Father, lead us to bow the knee to King Jesus today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.